Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We spend a lot of time talking about the size and scope of government. Today, we're turning those questions to private industry. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsu Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Today, we are going to discuss the G20 Summit and the Pearls and antitrust laws and enforcement in the suit. And in the heels, as always, we will talk about what's on our mind outside politics. Before we get started, we have a super special, exciting, week-long promotion to try to get us over to our goal of $3,000 on Patreon.com. Anybody who becomes a patron at Patreon.com forward slash Politics for any amount is going to get a handwritten postcard from Beth and I and a surprise pantsuit politics gift. We're not going to tell you what it is, but you'll get it if you subscribe. So if you've been on the fence, you can become a supporter for as little as a dollar. And there's all kinds of additional content you'll get. So head on over to Patreon and get us over to our goal, guys. We're so close. The news has been dominated this week by the G20. I thought it might be helpful to just zoom out for a second to reflect on what the G20 is. It actually stands for Group of 20, which is not the most sophisticated um, backstory, right, for that (laughs) acronym. But it's a forum for governments and central banks from 20 major world economies. Collectively, you have 85% of the gross world product and 80% of world trade represented by these 20 countries. It also represents two-thirds of the world's population. So this group has been meeting since 1999 and is now the main economic council for wealthy nations. They're trying to promote international financial stability. But as you can imagine, when you have that much wealth concentrated in one place, that much power around a table to the exclusion of lots of other nations, you always have tons of criticism of the G20 from intellectuals and protesters alike. You can rile up anti-capitalists and anarchists, you name it. People have complaints about what the G20 is. Well, and there were lots of violent protests. I heard a really interesting thing on NPR that they were in Hamburg, which is sort of like the the center point, the hotbed of a lot of um, extreme liberalism in the European Union. And so, you know, they didn't have to travel far. So there were lots of extreme protests from the left in Hamburg at the presence of Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. Politico has an interesting take on the the G20 that will link up in the show notes, but they talk about how Angela Merkel basically said, this is a thing that we did. We, we got through it. And in her closing press remarks, she kind of said, look, I have to take things as they are. I mean, you can really see how complex the world has become for her very quickly. Mm-hmm. And the violence in her home country did not help that. Well, I think what's so frustrating for me and the G20 just really solidified it is that we the absence of real global leadership from the Trump administration 
And I'm not really even sure they would argue that because America first, right? We're not going to be in the Paris Accord. We're not, we're going to pull out of these trade agreements. All that matters is that we put America first and we don't, you know, we're going to step off the global stage as this sort of global world leader. And so when we step out, someone else steps in and we've created a vacuum filled by China and Russia. They basically got together with the European, Japan and the European Union got together and basically reformulated the TPP since we weren't a part of it. So we're going to get left out. We're going to get left out of trade. We're going to get left out of global agreements. And it's so frustrating to have no power to see um, or to feel powerless in the face of this lack of leadership from your own country. I don't want to be left out. I still want to be a global leader. I want these countries to look and say, well, we need to figure out what the United States is going to do first and the role the United States will play in this. Um, I think that protects my children's future, and that's what I want. And so it's so frustrating to watch this and to just watch him and the rest of the administration not put forth plans and not take advantage of these situations and not, and to me, not put America first, because if you're not taking advantage of our global leadership and putting our interests, not even, you're not even at the table with, with, particularly with regards to the Paris Climate Accord and the TPP, like I talked about, if we're not at the table, who's protecting our interests? So frustrating. You cannot pretend that economic interests stand alone either. You cannot pretend that America first as an economic policy does not also equal a statement about where we stand in terms of international security, right? And issues like nuclear proliferation. I mean, all of these things, part of the criticism of the G20 is that it winds together power around all of these important topics so tightly. I was stunned. We posted a video of an Australian journalist assessing President Trump's performance at the G20. And there were a lot of stunning remarks that he made that that I think were just stunning in their poignancy. He so clearly Mm -hmm. articulated the situation we find ourselves in. But when he said so crisply that the summit ended as the G19 because the United States had pulled out of the climate accord, and you think about the fact that that means Argentina, Australia, Brazil, Canada, China, France, Germany, India, Indonesia, Italy, Japan, South Korea, Mexico, Russia, Saudi Arabia, South Africa, Turkey, the UK, and the European Union are all sitting there holding hands on something, and the United States is not part of that. That's crazy. Mm. And it's so disturbing. The only thing that gives me hope is um, the guys on Pod Save America were talking about like how bad a reputation around the globe was because of George W. Bush and the Iraqi conflict at the end of his term. And the presence of Obama just turned it right around. I mean, the only hope I have is like, well, hopefully this will just be temporary and we can, you know, our standing in the world will improve when we elect another president. But in the meantime, we are missing out and our interests are not being protected. And if we think that China and Russia and all these other countries are looking at what's for what's best for America, that's insane. If we're not at the table, we can't protect our interest. It's not a great comparison either, though, because the Bush administration for all of its many flaws and many serious flaws, did try to engage world leadership on those topics. Oh, yeah. Topics. I mean, that's like a hopeful comparison. That's <laughs> a hope very hopeful comparison. We hope we end up as, at the, at, like we were at the end of the Bush administration. The trouble with the Bush administration was that it took American intelligence as gospel when it was wrong. That was one problem and a, a major point of, of issues. But now we have a president who's who's using that as an example of why he actively discredits American intelligence intelligence on foreign soil. I thought mm-hmm. his press conference in Poland was unforgivable, increasingly authoritarian Poland. Yes. It, and and the fact that he's with the president of Poland and with Vladimir Putin disparaging the American media It's hard for me to look at the G20 and not feel like it is the definitive crossing of a threshold. I don't want to make too much of Ivanka Trump filling in for him because God knows we've done that right in the span, in the short span of time since it happened. But if you put all these things together, his conduct at the press conferences, the Putin meeting, which we haven't even started talking about yet. Ivanka filling in for his seat. The fact that on Sunday morning, he tweeted a video montage of the G20 over a choir singing what I guess is his new anthem, this Make America Great Again tune. 
you just really see that in his mind, he's not interested in being the president of a Western style democracy. No. And I really have tried to not sort of engage in the authoritarian narrative. Some of our listeners might think that's bananas because I bust on them all the time. But like, because mainly I don't think that Donald Trump is trying to build some sort of like global authoritarian superpower because I don't think it's about power for him. I think it's about attention. And those are two different things. And I don't think that he has a big enough vision of creating this authoritarian state. Like, I just don't think that's what he's in for. For a lot of reasons. But it's hard not to see that, like, on these trips, he is most comfortable with those types of leaders. He's most comfortable touching a giant global glowing orb with the king of Saudi Arabia. And he's most comfortable in the growing authoritarian Poland. And he's most comfortable chatting it up with Putin and praising Putin. He doesn't like it when he has to sit at a table with 15 other people and not play the leader. And everybody's not paying attention to him and letting him be the boss and letting him be the guy that fires people. Right. And so, you know, it's he clearly likes that environment. And I don't I guess what I'm the nuanced point I'm making is that's a threat, a definitely a threat, um, because if that's where he likes to get the attention, then they're those people are going to exploit that. And maybe not because I think that he has big plans to, you know, turn out, turn this into an authoritarian state. But like an authoritarian state can happen by um, maybe not default, but. By small choices without a big vision, I guess is what I'm saying. It depends, I think, on how closely connected the relationship between money and power stays. Mm-hmm. I think you're right that it's about attention. And I think that attention is is locked up in some pretty deep-seated psychological stuff, as well as a ravenous desire to accumulate a mass fortune for himself and his family. Right. And... Because money, power, and attention are so difficult to untangle, I think I think I get where you're going in that authoritarianism for the sake of let me have my own military and let me right. go conquer other nations and amass physical territory for the United States, not his interest. But many of the pieces that have to fall into place for something like that to happen could absolutely happen in his pursuit mm-hmm. of uh, expansion of the Trump brand, which is more and more what I think that this is about. And I understand the decision making so much better when I view it from the lens of brand development versus governing. Right, right. And that's why he likes he likes the look. He likes the big foot. What did he call What are you saying, Paul? And I like this red room. I think this red room is really I like the room. It's a lot of great room. Like, who cares? Right. Who cares? Well, if you like why, a big fancy room. That's why you have Ivanka seated at the table versus Steve yeah. Mnuchin or Gary Cohn or Mike Pence or any of a number of people who would have made more sense to fill in for him as he took one on one meetings with world leaders. I'll tell you what, if I were the president of the United States right now and really at any time. I would really shy away from one-on-one meetings with just about anyone. The mm-hmm. meeting with Vladimir Putin was not one-on-one. It was pretty darn close because you didn't have anybody in the room without, you know, with an unblemished record as it relates to Russia. You know, I think Rex Tillerson is probably a, a decent human being who is trying to navigate a terrible situation, but he is known for his connections with Russia through his work before he came into the administration and why you wouldn't have somebody like H.R. McMaster or General Mattis or Nikki Haley. I mean, there are a plethora of options, right, for for people who could be in there um, to give some confidence that this meeting was going to be above board. And now you've got with the limited number of people in that room, you still have conflicting accounts of what happened. And I, what's the most disturbing thing about all that is that their perception was like, we need to get as mo- most people in the room as possible to prevent him from like going off script or saying something terrible. Like we can't trust that. We can't actually trust him to do a one-on-one meeting. His own people don't trust him to do a one-on-one meeting. Well, and I don't think that the media has any confidence in his his readout. It's not just about his behavior, but his recollection of what occurred, the, mm-hmm. the spin that goes on it. And he... In such a bizarre. So if I were him, I would want to have the playback of the G20 minimize the Russian meeting 
And instead, he goes on a tweet storm about how tremendous it was to meet with Putin. And it sounds like a version of we agree to disagree about Russia's role in the election, but I probably more agree with Putin than the American intelligence community. I don't agree to disagree. I don't want to just agree to disagree. That's what you do when you're like, meh, agree to disagree. We don't need an outcome here. No, no, I don't want to do that. I want an outcome. I want a punishment so they don't do it again. Well, and and in agreeing to disagree, he's completely acquiescing to Putin and at the same time agreeing to collaborate on the protection of cybersecurity going forward, which is literally crazy. And, And especially crazy when you think about this commission that has been established that we talked about last week to gather all this sensitive voter information. Mm. Yikes. Well, should we compliment the other side to move to something positive? Because as you can probably tell, the G20 for me is is one of the more dramatic moments of this presidency so far. And there have been a lot to choose from. It's a stiff competition. But I really think this is a moment when if I were in the United States Senate, I would be having some very serious closed door meetings with my colleagues about what we're going to do about this. Mm -hmm. I agree. So who's on your mind this week, Sarah? So I am going to praise Senator Shelley Caputo from West Virginia. Did I say her last name right? I believe so. And I knew that you were going to, I was like, I know it's going to be Shelley Caputo. Yeah. Well, because she came out and basically was like, if I have to be the one person to kill this this healthcare bill, I will. So, I mean, she does. She has such a whore, like a very needy, very vulnerable population at West Virginia. And, you know, she needs, somebody needs to stick up for, somebody needs to stick up for the their people they're actually representing. And so, I don't know. I respect the fact that she came out and was like, I'm not going anywhere on this. It's not budging. I'm not budging. I'm anxious to see the future stories about Republican women senators in the Trump administration. Mm, Yeah. Like their bios 20 years from now. Exactly. (laughs) Um, I wanted to praise Donna Edwards. So my compliment is related to healthcare as well. She is a former representative and has a just heartbreakingly vulnerable opinion piece in the Washington post this week entitled, I have MS don't make my insurance unaffordable. Yeah. I like Donna Edwards. It's a beautifully written um, illustration of how, of lots of things. One of the most compelling parts of it, I think, is that it shows how quickly your circumstances change based on your employment in our country Mm. as it relates to health care. Uh, but it's it's very well done. I thought it was very brave to put her personal story out there in such an open way. So great, great work. Great public service from Donna Edwards. So up next in the suit, we're going to discuss antitrust laws and monopolies. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. 
Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day. Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So I don't know about everybody else, but we have noticed an increased conversation surrounding antitrust laws. There have been a lot of high profile pieces in the New York Times. A lot of the podcasts I've listened to have been talking about um, antitrust and our our sort of the lack of competition in our growing economy. And so we wanted to spend some time talking about that today. I think we all notice it, you know, that we have huge pharmaceutical companies. We have huge tech companies. It seems like every industry is just growing and merging and growing and merging. The last two years were the highest records of mergers ever in U.S. history. And with that lack of competition, there's been a lot of reports from the Council of Economic Advisors and others that this really hurts our innovation. It hurts small businesses. And so um, as we talk about that, it raises like a whole host of issues. And so we just wanted to spend some time discussing it from different perspectives. So what is your perspective on antitrust, Beth? I think antitrust is really important and really difficult. Mm-hmm. I found an awesome, it, now it's a nerdy piece and it's not going to be for everyone, <laughs> but it is an awesome discussion of partisanship and how it, it affects antitrust enforcement from a law journal that we'll link in the show notes. And antitrust enforcement has not really broken down on Democrat and Republican lines. Like this isn't an issue where you're going to have Democrats saying, we need tougher antitrust laws and Republicans saying, no, we don't. You know, at different times, it's it's less about what the laws say often and more about how they're enforced. So if you look at the Obama administration, I really can understand why there was so little enforcement because we're coming out of the 2008 recession. And so you're trying to I think we're just in this period of experimentation. What's the new economy look like? And trying to kill a bunch of mergers coming out of a really desperate period, that's a big ask. So I I don't know exactly what the future of antitrust enforcement looks like, but I think a key point that came out of this Law Journal article is that you really need stability in the agencies that do this work so that everybody can get really clear on what the rules are and have confidence that the rules are being applied fairly and not based on campaign contributions, for example. Um, Well, I think stability is definitely a word I would use to describe the Trump administration. So I think that'll be great. And considering that there's lots of talk right now that Trump is punishing NBC by denying their merger with, I forgot who, who the merger, Comcast, somebody and somebody else who owns NBC. And they're implying that it's because he's mad about the news coverage. So that'll lead to the stability and the enforcement for sure. President Trump has been involved with antitrust laws personally three times. 
two of them in defensive postures and one in an offensive posture. So you can tell that he doesn't really have a philosophically pure vision about antitrust laws, which is a sentence that will surprise no one. But I think it's it's kind of instructive to look at the fact he had one issue of basically disclosure. So you have to report certain acquisition and merger activity over a particular threshold. I don't want to get too legalese or, or wonky as we talk about this. And there were disclosure issues with the Trump transaction. It was settled eventually for, I think, $750,000. So he probably has some distaste for um, what I can imagine felt to him like federal bureaucrats sticking their nose into a business deal where it didn't belong. But then he offensively tried to use antitrust laws when he created or was involved in the creation of a competitor to the National Football League. Do you remember this, Sarah? Oh, I do remember this vaguely. I didn't know he was involved in that. Yeah, he was involved. I don't think he was a founder, but he got involved at some point and wanted to more directly compete with the NFL than others involved in the league. Like he wanted to move the season to the fall. I saw a quote where he said something like, if God intended football to be played in the spring, he wouldn't have invented baseball. Like he really wanted to take the NFL on. And It sounds like maybe as a tactic, this lawsuit was filed accusing the NFL of being an unfair monopoly. And the jury in that case found that the NFL probably was a monopoly, but they only awarded $1 in damages, which became $3 for treble damages. (laughs) There were some attorney fees, but the lawsuit didn't get the competitor football league anywhere. And there were some remarks from the judge in the case that the competitor league that Trump was a part of at that point wanted to use the court system to to create success that it had not earned, that basically it wasn't a good enough business model. And if it was, mm-hmm. they wouldn't need this lawsuit. And this lawsuit isn't there to say you're not a good business model, but you still deserve to make lots of money on this. Well, I think for me, like one of the I've listened to a couple interviews recently that have helped me like sort of with a bigger picture beyond just what Trump is thinking about thinking about um, antitrust and from two sort of surprisingly contrasting sources. One was a Steve Hilton interview we've talked about a lot on Freakonomics, which was really interesting. It was just I think um, sort of. He is, for anyone who doesn't know, Steve Hilton was an advisor to David Cameron. He was an architect for for Brexit. He believes strongly that Brexit is the right thing for Britain. So this is not a this is not a left guy. He's a very right wing guy. But it's so interesting to listen to right wing guys from Britain and the European, well, particularly from there, because you know it takes out all the sort of emotional issues because this dude is not anti-gay. He's pro-choice. Like he's very, it just takes out all the sort of the social conservative issues and the emotionality surrounding those for me. And so I can listen more open-minded to sort of his just pure views on government and regulation. And one of the things he said, which was really interesting, he said, I'm very much a pro-business person, but the way that they've become so big and the power so concentrate operates against the public interest and the individual interest. We need to break up this concentration of power. Now, I don't present it as the absolute answer to every single problem, but in the economy, for example, we need a far greater, much more aggressive antitrust policy like we used to have many years ago. Over the last few decades, it's got completely blown apart. In government, we need to decentralize power. Let's see how we can try to make the default unit of governments the neighborhood where people actually know each other and can relate to each other in human ways. Let's see if we can really decentralize in a very radical way so that people feel that they're in control of the stuff that really matters to them. And I realized, like, if... People, I react so strongly to this idea of this sort of the harsh criticism of big government and um, let's just take everything to the local government because my brain immediately goes, well, yeah, who's going to protect us from giant corporations if there's not an equally giant government with the power to to sort of scale that back and to say no and to say stop and all these things And I realized like, well, if somebody stood up and said, I want to scale back government and I also want to scale back corporations, I would be much more um, amenable to those ideas because my concern with smaller government is who is going to regulate big business. And so when he said that, I was like, okay, well, let's talk about that. I'm down with that. If you can scale back business, 
But you can't have, oh, we're going to have all this great local government and like Google. It don't work like that. Like that's a massive imbalance and who's going to sort of regulate and have the power to say, no, you can't do that. And so I just thought that was a really interesting. So when he put it in that perspective, I thought, yeah, I will talk about scaling back the size of government if along with it, we talk about scaling back the size of business. And I just thought that was a really interesting perspective. And um, I know you listened to that interview too, Beth. What did you think about that? I really appreciated his perspective. And it was a challenging interview for me because I thought that Brexit was such a mistake. And he's a major proponent of Brexit. His theory was was not about white nationalism, right? No, or he, he makes a case, man. He's talking. You're like, I don't know. That's convincing. <laughs> I mean, he 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 is consistently putting forward an idea that I believe in, which is usually small things run better than large things once you get to a certain scale. That's not universally true. That is vastly oversimplified. But it's easier to shift and mold small things than large ones. And when you start adding and adding and adding, you get more complexity, you get more power, you get more actors who are able to influence people beyond the scope of maybe what's appropriate. And I think that he makes a really compelling point. And I think your point is a good one as well. And and that's an angle that I hadn't thought about before, because I always think When I hear people say they want the government to protect them, I always think about the price of that government protection because you can't protect unless you also have an offensive capability, right? And so I I think, well, if you want the government to play defense, what's to stop it from playing offense? But but it's fair to say the same thing about large corporations. Mm -hmm. And this is such an interesting time to be having that discussion because the face of those corporations is changing. It was much easier, I think, in the past to look at Exxon or AT&T or, I mean, no disrespect to these companies, but to, to make telecommunications and airlines and oil companies the big bad corporations. It's really different to talk about Amazon, you know, yeah. and Google and and some of these companies that are still new enough and that have been so transformative in the way that we live and shop and interact with each other. So so they're not we don't think of them as evil. Right. But in some ways, the danger of what an Amazon or a Google could do to us versus Exxon, it's infinitely greater, infinitely greater. Yeah, it's really interesting. There was a New York Times piece called Is It Time to Break Up Google? And it said, in just 10 years, the world's five largest companies by market capitalization have all changed, save for one Microsoft. ExxonMobil, General Electric, Citicorp, and Shell are Shell Oil are out. Apple, Alphabet, the parent company of Google, Amazon, and Facebook have taken their places. They're all tech companies, and each dominates its corner of the industry. And that's another like sort of big aspect of this that um, I've been listening to a lot of people talk about lately. And one of the best interviews I heard was with... Zephyr Teachout, who's a law professor at Fordham, and she just ran for Congress in New York. And she's author of this book called Corruption in America. And she was on the Ezra Klein show. And she did a really good job of explaining sort of like the founders concerns with um, monopolies and that there's all these costs with wage suppression. And you really it's almost like you have a shadow government. You have these private power players that wield such power within our government that it's it they they don't they're not they are not um sort of at the hands of the traditional checks and balances they don't they don't have to respond to those and so one of her perspectives that I thought was really interesting is that we just have this overabundance of focus on consumer price and like the 70s and 80s they just shifted the sort of new school of thought with regards to antitrust and that the only concern was sort of consumer protection and consumer price and so if the price is dropping we don't have a problem And you can really see that that vision has not worked. And it's most certainly incredibly problematic to apply to platform monopolies like Google, whose service is free. So, you know, it's just you see that these we have this really big problem. And, you know, in the the New York Times piece, his this Jonathan Taplin's argument is like, we're going to have to decide soon because they are clearly monopolies. Like the idea that the government 
that our government in particularly has a different view. I mean, we had the European Union come out and put a $2.7 billion fine on Google for being a monopoly. And so this discussion is happening. And to continue to pretend that this isn't a monopoly because somebody can click somewhere else and search. Well, come on. Like, I just I think this is another example of something we talk about a lot that like the the institution we set up and the ideas sort of feeling this institution are wildly outdated to the situation we currently find ourselves in. Because, listen, I love Google and I love Facebook and I love Amazon, but like I have become increasingly uncomfortable with their share and our economy. And, you know, as a Democrat, they wield huge power within the party. And it's not like Obama was really hard on them because half his staff was from freaking Google. So, you know, I think that we have to, but we have to think about it just because we love the services and they're not obvious costs like pollution in the public square with something like an Exxon. It doesn't mean that there aren't costs. And we have to start thinking about the the changing ways that technology um, exerts power and the cost that comes with that. And just deciding that because it's sort of in the internet sphere, it's not reality and the costs aren't real. I mean, I think you even see that with sort of cyber attacks. You know, we don't talk about what Russia did in the election as an act of war, even though it most certainly was. I mean, they attacked our country, but because it's sort of in cyberspace and we don't see it as real and like, but if they'd come over here and like blown up an election booth, well, yeah, that'd be different. But it's just so interesting the way that when these conflicts take place in that space and in that industry, it's like we like can't formulate concrete actions because we feel like it's not a concrete situation, but it most certainly is. It's almost like we're losing our grip on what's real because it's changing so quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think that relates to price, too. I've been thinking a lot about Walmart and Old Navy and things that feel distinctly American that are not really about products at all, but about channels for products. You know, Walmart, you're not going in there to buy a bunch of stuff that's made in America. You're not really even going in there to get a thing. You're going in there because you can buy a bunch of stuff at a really cheap price. And what Walmart has done so effectively is aggregate really inexpensive products and establish a channel for delivering those products in a really inexpensive way. And now you have Amazon doing the same thing. I was reading this debate among economists in Forbes about Donald Trump, Donald Trump kind of said, well, I think, you know, Jeff Bezos is worried that I'm going to use antitrust laws because of this whole foods merger. So setting aside how petty and ridiculous the the president's angle on Jeff Bezos and Amazon is, if you well, think and at about, one point he was like saying he was saying like he was he didn't even understand Amazon's position, like Amazon was supporting something he was acting like they they would be afraid he'd deny. You know what I mean? Like the, he got all he even got the facts wrong on one of those things. So it's so interesting to see these economists debate what kind of merger this is. Is Whole Foods about the food or is Whole Foods a distribution channel the way Amazon is a distribution channel? Mm. Like what actually is happening? And you had this really esteemed group of people who who couldn't agree on the answer to that question. So how do you even begin an analysis of competition? When you're not really sure what these businesses are about. And then when you get to Facebook and Google, gosh, that gets crazy, right? <laughs> I mean, well, it's, yeah. And it's like, you know, the, and not to go back to that same New York Times piece, but he talks about like, is Google a utility? Are we just at this point going to acknowledge like it's a public utility? We need to treat it as such. And I think that's true of the internet itself. I mean, I think that for one of the things he argues for in that article is at the very least, we need to like stop all these mergers and stop like, let's just push pause and say, hold on, hold on, hold on. Like, do we really want Facebook and Instagram and, and Google and Snapchat and all these different competitors being owned by the same company, even if it doesn't seem like they're the exact same thing? Because in that space, the platform space, like, vertical integration can be such a risk to the competition and to what the consumer, the sort of the control the consumer has, or even public consumer protection with regards to prices. And so, you know, and it's just so hard for me because I'm sitting here thinking like, yeah, 
that that there are the occupation of these tech companies as the biggest the biggest corporations, the biggest um, capitalization, like those statistics we were talking about in the in the beginning, like it's not Exxon anymore, it's Google. But then I'm like, yeah, but I feel a little bit protected as an American that these companies are all American companies sitting at the top of the pile. And if we're talking about we can't depend on the leadership in the White House and the global space, at least we have Google and Amazon and Apple out there as American companies sort of in this space looking out for our interests. And that is now we're really talking about a privately held Government, You know what I mean? Like then we're really, really talking about the concerns of the founding fathers that we've been publicly enabled private power. And me as a voter are thinking, well, at least Apple and Amazon are protecting my interests since Donald Trump won't. And and the truth is, I don't know if they are or not. Yeah. I know I like all their stuff. I know that I want everything to work seamlessly. You know, I've said before in my office, I wish that we could just use Google for everything instead of our own systems. Because yeah. it's so much easier to share information and to collaborate. And I love, I love having all my devices at home be Apple devices so that everything talks to each other. So I behave as a consumer as though none of this troubles me. But when I step right. out of that consumer role, it definitely does trouble me. And so that's why I think the government has a really important role to play here because I don't think the market alone corrects these things. You know, the market certainly unchecked contributes to all of this. Well, and here's the other thing I think about. Look, I don't want to punish somebody for being innovative. Yeah, exactly. exactly. I don't want to punish a company for doing a good job. But here's what I think we need to be really honest with ourselves. So for several years, I have existed, like I've worked in the online space. And I can speak to my experience as bloggers. As a blogger. So as blogs took off, it, the most successful bloggers were good and they put out good content, but a huge aspect of their success was timing and that they were first. So was Google or Google and Amazon and Apple and Mark Zuckerberg and all these people, these icons we talk about, are they smart and innovative? And did they see things that other people didn't see? Yes. But at the same time, I push back against the idea that there's like one person who saw possibility, like one person didn't invent paper. There were like societies all over the world kind of inventing all these things simultaneously. So I don't really buy this idea that it's like one person who sees the way. I think that a lot of it is timing and resources and the fact that these were all white guys with like spare time and money. So I don't know. I just I I, I think that they're innovative, but I think you also have to acknowledge that like Google and Facebook and Amazon benefited from a lot of things beyond just the thoughts inside their founders' heads. And so I'm not punishing you because you were innovative, but I am saying we need to acknowledge that when you came along was important and sort of that you were first and all these different aspects that you had access to. Um, that's important too. And so let's not create a false narrative that you get to be king of the industry. You know, it's like, it's, it's, I mean, it's not really that different from sort of the oil barons of the early 19th century. Like, were you the smartest and the hardest working or were you like in the right space at the right time and had the money to invest and were willing to like shoot people in the kneecaps to get ahead? You know what I mean? I do. And I think that it also relates to scale because some of the success of the people you just described is a result of the scale they achieved. Right. But you have to wonder, too, how much more innovation, once they've gotten past that sort of sweet spot, at some point, scale prevents innovation. Mm-hmm. And what innovation are we not realizing? Well, original innovation, it, pre- it get, allows you to scoop up everybody else's innovation. <laughs> right. And so uh, are uh, what innovation are we missing because we have such dominant players in these spaces? And it always, it just breaks my heart. Like this happens, this happened to me so many times. Like you get an app and you're like, oh my God, this is so smart. Like this is so great. And you know, and then they just, that technology gets, gets gobbled up and Google builds it into their system. And you're like, man, I feel bad for those people. Like they thought it up and then Google's like, yeah, that's a great idea. I'll take that. You know, and then, and not to mention like, there's like a whole nother show we could do on intellectual properties role and all of this and the way those companies yield that power. And they're hugely related. And it's all this weird balancing act because I could argue feverishly that our intellectual property laws are out of control. 
I could also argue that intellectual property laws are essential to a healthy economy in which innovation occurs. And, and that's the situation with all of this. And I think this is kind of illustrative of why partisanship is killing us right now, because all of these topics are difficult, not pure partisan topics and require a whole lot of people willing to give here and there to try to come to something that works. And it's going to take a lot of experimentation because we are in a completely different economy than we, when we were dealing with oil barons. Well, this is, we can add this to the list. I keep wanting to do the show called important things we're not solving because we're too busy arguing about Donald Trump's tweets. So we can put that on the list. Absolutely. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code podcast 15. Have you ever had a dry, itchy scalp or found that your hair color isn't lasting as long as the stylist assured you it would? Unfiltered, mineral-filled water could be the reason. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered showerhead comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered showerhead. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement, unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. So in the heels today, we'll talk about what's on our minds outside of politics. Sarah, what have you been thinking about outside of politics? I've been watching TV because all our listeners sent me all the Ricks. So <laughs> I've already watched 
the entirety of Harlots. I did it in like two days, whatever. Uh, I don't feel bad about that because I haven't watched TV in like three weeks. So I don't feel bad that I watched like eight hours in three days. Um, it was so good, you guys. I've got to watch it. It's If you watched a preview or anything, do you know what it's about, Beth? I don't. I don't know anything about that one. Oh, it's so good. It's on Hulu. It's a it's set in 17th, the 1700s. So that's 18th century Britain, where I think, oh, dang it. I can't remember if it was one in five or one in three women were prostitutes because – that was basically the only economic power accessible to women. And it's there's a lot of amazing female characters. It's sort of this warring um, to uh, madams who have two rival houses, although they call them bods on the show. That was like the word they used in Britain at that time. And it's just all like a, a lot of amazing actresses. Samantha, oh, I can't remember her last name is in it. And the woman who played the youngest daughter on Downton Abbey who died in childbirth. I'm still traumatized by that episode. She's on there is a very different character for her. She's really great. Um, and also it's just beautiful to look at all the costumes and fun things like that. So I just watched that. I'm going to watch Glow next on a couple recommendations and The Magicians. Those were the big three I heard over and over again. So those are on my list to watch. We watched the pilot of Glow and we'll probably go back and watch more of it. I thought it was, I thought it was interesting. Chad also wants to go back and watch the old Twin Peaks and then the new one, which oh, I, I did not watch when it was on. Pass. Ugh, I could not be less interested. Well, I got through, I don't know, half of the very long premiere of the old Twin Peaks, and I was also not interested at all. No, but it's just not my thing. I'm not into it. I will try. What are, you, what are you thinking about this week? Chad and I found ourselves in the middle of a country music festival this weekend, which is How not our scene. How does one do that? So Chad is a client who has a VIP tent at this festival. And this is what I'm really thinking about. Not so much the country music festival, but I'll talk about it in a second. We're kind of in this space of like just saying yes to things. <laughs> because I think we've said no for a long time because we've had small children. And you get into this. We at least got into this thing of like nap time is protected at all costs. The sleep schedule is the most important thing that we have. And and so we just have been pretty contained for a number of years. And I think that was good for our family and good for our kids. I don't regret that at all. But it's nice to be at this point now where we have a little bit more flexibility as our girls are getting older and they're spending some time with grandparents. So his client says, you want to come to this music festival? And we're like, yes, we do. We don't care about country music at all. We are not festival people, but sure, let's do it. And so uh, we drove like 600 miles yesterday because we had Holy to go to crap. A, we had to go to a funeral like down in South oh, Central not Kentucky. Oh, just one way to get there. Okay. Right, right. And then we had to kind of drive all the way back up and then even more north. So it was a lot of driving to go to this festival. We were only there for a couple of hours. It was delightful. It, I mean, the trashy patriotic apparel was at its peak. I saw this star-spangled hammered shirt that I thought was hysterical. Um, there were boxes of like Cheez-Its everywhere and drones <laughs> circling the stage and very few men wearing shirts. And it was just not at all the kind of place that I spend much time in. And I enjoyed it so much because of that. The people watching was insane. And it just, it again, just kind of reinforced, like, I just need to go do things, you know, <laughs> I don't have to fit in my life in any way. Well, I love country music, but I'm a country music snob. Now, I'm not the kind of snob that, like, says they only like Loretta Lynn and Johnny Cash and nothing new. I think that's obnoxious. But I am definitely of the, like, Casey Musgraves, Dix, well, Dixie Chicks are arguably not country anymore, but um, sort of the, like, the the liberal wing of the country music. Like, I do not enjoy the bro country. I do not enjoy the pop country. Um, so I'm not sure how I would have enjoyed the music at that festival. I don't, I'm not a huge music festival person either. I do like a concert, but like let's just doing that for like hours at a time is probably not my scene. But I do love country music. I've always loved, I grew up listening to a lot of country music. I still like I, I do like some big groups like Garth Brooks is my man. Trisha Yearwood. Love her. Um, I would listen to Reba McIntyre sing the phone book. So there's some of those people that I like. But like you can tell, look, my interest, my interest in like mainstream country ended in like 1999 when I graduated from high school because like I don't know anybody older than that. We're exactly the that. same way. Like you Except turn for on, Casey Musgraves. You turn on something, Garth Brooks, Alan Jackson, Reba McIntyre, my brain knows all those lyrics just yeah. out of the blue. Um, but I don't know anything new. So the headline act at this festival was uh, Florida Georgia Line. That no, is not see, my mm -mm. thing. 
No, no, no. Absolutely not. I I know enough of them to know I hate that music. (laughs) What I will say, uh, we saw Brett Eldridge right before that or Brent Eldridge. I don't know. The thing about country music is you do know the person can sing. Like you're not going to go to a country music show and think, oh, my God, they suck and computers are doing this because that is not how country music works. And so I always appreciate that you're going to hear somebody who can sing. It was just, it was fun. I, I wasn't well, all that into the music. Well, here's the other thing about country music. Country music is truly the most, I don't know if democratic's populist, I don't know what the right word is, but like, you know, they're, that country music stars are more accessible than stars in any other genre of music. I mean, they have huge festivals in Nashville where you can go meet them and get their signatures. They're hugely responsive to their fans. Country music radio wields, I, I feel like I've used that phrase a lot in this episode. A huge amount of power um, as compared to other sort of radio industries, as you saw with sort of how the Dixie Chicks get treated and et cetera. But, you know, I like that about country music. And I think that country music and country musicians um, understand instinctively. And maybe that's why they're more associated with uh, right leaning politics. The sort of uh, things I keep talking about from the self-righteous mind, the moral foundations, they definitely understand like loyalty to group, respect for the sacred, respect for authority. Like country music understands that like they get all those emotional um, buttons to press. And, you know, I like that. I like country music. I think that they and I, I think they get a bad rap and sort of my defensiveness as a southern get southerner gets riled when people bust on country music i mean i can bust on them because i can talk about my mama anytime i want but nobody else can it's complicated i don't want to take is. this too into too much depth but i was thinking about that as i was sitting i mean there are like sixty thousand people here and this is the third day of this festival and people are having a really good time and i look around and i think this is like a really healthy version of coming to have a good time, even though a lot of people are drunk and sick and whatever. So not healthy in the physical sense, but and I'm sure sunburned to all get out. Yes. But there is a sense of community, all the things that you're talking about. Right. And the, the music is fun and people are dancing and it's all good. And so that's one perspective on the crowd. And then another perspective on the crowd is it was very hard to find anybody who wasn't white Mm -hmm. Uh, the cars and the parking lot spoke to a very particular socioeconomic status that was pretty well uniform. And so you have this really inclusive community of people in the one sense, and then a really exclusive community of people in the other sense. And how much intention is wrapped around that? I don't know, but it was like a, a snapshot of one piece of America that feels really good about what it is for all the reasons that you just stated. And man, somebody with a different framework who didn't grow up in that um, would have a totally different take on this. And so it, I don't know. That's again, just like say yes to things so that you can go see that. Right. Well, and here's the thing about music festivals. They're not Congress. They don't need to be representative. You're going to go to other festivals that are going to be full of like NPR hippies. And you're going to go to hip hop festivals that you're not going to find a white person for a really long way. So I don't think that that's a problem. Like ever to each their own. And I think that genres of music are you're going to push those emotional buttons with a certain group of people for a reason. And that's okay. And um, to feel included in a group is fine. It's just when you use that which I think you can accuse country music of absolutely doing to the exclusion of other groups to say, not only are we a group, but we are better. We are a better group. We are a more important group. That's when you run into problems. Well, then that's what's also complicated because we don't, there is so much identity wrapped up in every single thing we participate in as Americans that we always take it too far. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's why I think it is important to just, step out and and try different things that aren't your scene because like we need a lot more of that as a country right now i think that that is the perfect closing um subtitle for this episode america we always take it too far (laughs) (laughs) well thank you for joining us you can never take pantsy politics too far so please join us on social media we are at pantsy politic on twitter with no x s because our characters are limited Pantsuit Politics on Facebook and Instagram. We try to be very active on social media throughout the week. Patreon.com if you want to support the work that we're doing here. And we really appreciate it when you do. We will be back with you on Friday for another episode. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Bye.